Welcome to Your Career Podcast, the podcast that helps to ensure your career success. To start getting on track with your career, download my free career goals calendar from thecareersacademy.online. My goals calendar includes a smart goals template and a weekly tasks sheet that will ensure step-by-step you get closer to reaching your career goals. So download my goals calendar today at thecareersacademy.online. Now on with the show. the interconnectivity of the world and not just people but things as well being connected what does that mean it it just rapidly increases complexity Mm. and what do you know from a complex system the only thing that you can really be sure of is that you can't be sure of anything Mm. because complexity is all about when you can't break a complex system down into its individual parts or you might be able to but you can't then add them up and reconstruct it because mm. the sum of the individual parts are different and which which is a, which is basically it's the science behind VUCA mm. um, and which is why it suggests that all this madness that's out there it's it's the new norm until I don't know what new paradigm shift will occur in the next 10 to 20 years and I think it will but for the next 10 years we're in it Welcome to Jane Jackson Careers, a podcast that takes your career to the next level. Here's your host, Jane Jackson, author of Amazon Careers bestseller, Navigating Career Crossroads. Welcome back to my careers podcast, where I interview fascinating professionals who are leaders in their field or have transitioned into entrepreneurship. Now, today I have a very interesting gentleman, Patrick Hollingworth, who is a contrarian organizational thinker. He writes, he speaks, and he advises organizations on how to deal with a VUCA world, a world which is becoming more volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous by the day. He's the author of the book, The Light and Fast Organization, published by Wiley in 2016. Now, a little background on Patrick. After studying anthropology, geography and psychology at university, he spent a decade with a large international consultancy working on some of the largest and most complex infrastructure projects ever built in Australia. He's seen the very best of what large organizations can create and also the very worst. At the same time, he began exploring the uncertainty and complexity which go hand in hand with mountaineering. Firstly, he learnt the art of alpine style in the mountains of New Zealand, Canada and France, and then the science of expedition style in the mountains of Pakistan, Nepal, Tibet, Alaska and Argentina. It's taken him to great heights, literally. He's summited multiple 8,000 metre peaks, including Mount Everest. And over the past 15 years, he's been a member of small, light and fast alpine style teams. He's led rather large, heavy and slow expedition style teams too. He's seen the very best of what alpine style can offer and also the very worst of what expedition style can deliver. So Patrick lives and breathes his stuff. He's based in Australia and he travels internationally delivering keynote presentations, workshops, mentoring and consulting to organisations such as Marks and Spencer's, Chevron, Rio Tinto and many 
mid-sized Australian, Asian, European banks, medical and technology companies, government departments and educational institutions. So he's a very, very busy man. And I'm very lucky to have experienced his amazing talk at a conference last year. And I thought I must have him on the show. So welcome to the show, Patrick. Thank you, Jane. Fantastic to be here. Yes, and what an amazing bio you have. You've done so many different things. So I'm really looking forward to to finding out how does someone become Patrick Hollingworth? <laughs> so how about uh, good question? <laughs> yes, exactly. Because I mean, you've had such a fascinating career journey. So how about just to kick us off? Tell us a little bit about your early days and when you were a young boy. What sort of career aspirations did you have? Yeah, well, I started out with, um, I guess, very traditional career aspirations in, in that I, I initially wanted to be a pilot. Um, and I was, you know, at, you know, at, at high school studying two different types of maths and physics and chemistry and all that kind of stuff and, um, didn't actually do very well on those subjects. Um, and so I kind of realized that perhaps the world of hard science really wasn't where I was best suited. Um, but I was also interested in the natural world. And so that led me to when I finished um, high school, you know, going to university and studying geography um, and then also anthropology and psychology because essentially I was curious around people and the natural places of the world and, and how, how they interact with one another. So from wanting to be a pilot to, um, to studying people and places, it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a, a shift. Um, but but one that I think I'm probably is more naturally aligned to my strengths. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting combination, isn't it? Anthropology, geography, and psychology. How did you decide on those three main subjects? Um, I think um, it was in when I was in the latter years of high school when I realised that the world of of hard science, you know, your physics and chem and maths wasn't for me, and I shifted to more of your natural sciences and, and your, your social sciences, that, that's when I realised that that's probably where my strengths lay. And so um, I, I studied some of those in year 12 and then in university I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, um, but those were topics which I guess just interested me. Um, and, um, but yeah, I certainly didn't enter university with a plan of what it was I wanted to do you know, I, I just sort of um, followed where, I guess, where my interests lay, and and as I said before, where my strengths lay as well. Yeah, actually, it's so, it's so interesting when you're very young and you're, you're deciding on subjects, and you think, oh goodness, this is what I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Choosing those subjects can be quite stressful because you don't know where it's actually going to take you. And so, once you got your um, your degree in anthropology, geography, and psychology, which would would have been your majors, um, coming towards the end of the uni days, what sort of roles did you start to think about? I guess. Um I guess by that point in time, because I did a, I, I then went and did an honours year in in geography, um, and and I was sort of, I guess by that point in time, I discovered the mountains, and so I was really interested in in management of natural areas and um, mountain park, uh, national national park sort of management. So I, I, I did some I did some, some my honours year sort of studies in that, and so it led me to to looking at a career as a consultant and and particularly as an environmental consultant, um, which is which was pretty much the thing that you did if you were um, particularly interested in geography. So 
um, it kind of led me into that world of business. Um, and environmental consulting is a, a weird thing because most most people attracted to the natural sciences, um, you know, uh, are attracted to it because they enjoy and appreciate the natural environment. And yet, working as a consultant, inevitably your your client is a developer um, who's looking to build something or to construct something. Um, and inevitably that can have some detrimental impact on the environment. So it's always a bit of a paradox for a lot of folk who are attracted to the natural sciences but then enter the world of the big world of sort of corporate business and consulting because it can be challenging at times. Yeah, that's difficult because it would have um, probably gone a little bit against your natural values, your personal values as well. Uh, when you're thinking you're going in into a, a role where the environment is something that you want to protect and then businesses are building something that might not do it. Did you did you find that conflict very challenging? Yeah, look, in the early days I certainly did. Um, but as time went by and I got to, I guess I better understood, I guess I was able to see things from a bigger picture, not just focus on one particular element or another. Um, and then when I could work on projects where I could see that there were um, – there were benefits to the work that was being done as well. Well, then I, I guess I could appreciate it from more of a kind of a, a, a higher contextual level. Um, but yeah, look, I certainly did find it challenging, and and ultimately, um, it was a, a career path that I wasn't particularly satisfied with. Um, I was, you know, as as you do, you sort of you move up the ranks, and I was managing a team of people and. I guess I was more interested really then in the, the people dynamics um, and that's when I sort of started sort of playing in that space. And I got to see, I mean, look, I worked with a lot of large organisations and, um, I mean, I got to see how large organisations not only manage, you know, large, complicated um, projects in terms of construction and the like, but also how they manage people, you know, and we're talking about organisations with thousands of people and, and I got to see the way that people are generally treated you know, as a the traditional approach, which is as, as a resource. Um, and so I guess that opened my eyes to the, the that corporate world and particularly how you, yeah, your large organisations go about managing people. Um, and so that sort of brought me back to my interest, I guess, in the university days of psychology, which is really you know, the individual, and then anthropology, which is really the, the study of, of groups of of individuals collectively. So in a roundabout way, it all kind of started flowing in together, um, if that makes sense. And I started realising while well, working purely as a consultant on, you know, the environmental engineering kind of construction work was really not my primary interest in it, and nor was it my, my, my key strength either. Mm. It, it, it's fascinating combining the psychology and the anthropology as well because I'm trying to connect the dots here and how your career path has has progressed and you, you've been observing as you would as an anthropologist you know the, the way that groups of people work within different size teams or different size organizations and um, as it says in your bio you've been a member of small light and fast alpine style teams and then the heavy and slow expedition style teams and so you can you can just think about the different size organizations and whether they're very much old school in the way that they uh, work as well so having this experience of the, the two extremes, um, what, what would your observations be? Um, I guess, and, and I should point out that when I talk about that experience, I'm, I'm both 
um, speaking metaphorically, mm. um, but also literally in the sense of 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 being out in the mountains and, and having worked in, in in groups and teams of people as well. And so I guess it was at that point in time that the my interest was sort of shifting towards people that that the, I guess that was consistent with the development. Of, well, the, the more and more time that I was myself spending out in the mountains. Um, and of course, when you're climbing, particularly in the Himalayas, you're climbing with lots of people, and you're generally working in large teams. And so, I started kind of seeing similarities um, and differences in the dynamics of of the way that groups of people were operating, not only in the organisational context, but also in that mountain environment. And so, that's where I started seeing those similarities and some of those differences coming out. Um, and that's when I and and the similarities were often some of the um, I think that the the mistakes that can be made when um, groups of people or individuals are treated as a resource in a group, um, whether it be in a professional organisational context or whether it be on a mountain, um, I got to see um, I guess the impact that that has on individuals, um, and then I also got to experience working in smaller lighter style teams both professionally and in the mountains and again i got to see what i think were some of the benefits of that um and so in my mind i guess i guess you could say a a sort of a theory or an idea or a concept started forming um and uh, for me it led to a realization that a lot of the traditional ways we go about doing things in the world of work um i think and i i was feeling for a long time was starting to provide diminishing returns as the world was shifting faster and faster. Um, and so, again, yeah, I guess this sort of theory in my head started forming and I started really playing around with it. I, I think that's so interesting. Can I, before we go into more of the corporate side and your work, I'd love to find mm. out more about your mountaineering because all mm. I've done, Patrick, is climb Mount Kinabalu. Okay, so okay. <laughs> I, I, I mind you, it was very tough for me. <laughs> Yeah, that's still, you know, that's 4,000 metres high, so it'll give yeah. you enough to give you a headache. Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, well, some some of our, our team who were going up, you know, did get um, altitude sickness as well. I, I just charged up there. It was quite quite interesting. But it was funny because we were wearing um, uh, summer gear and bikini tops and everything when we were going up. This is when I was much younger. Uh, but by, by the time we got up to the top, we're in balaclavas and yeah. ski gear and, and we had to stay overnight um, and that final bit – I remember just thinking, "Oh, I want to die. I'm never going to yeah. make it." I'm no- and and that self talk is is really, uh, you got to just keep pushing through it. So, with what you've done, you know, climbing Mount Everest and all of the other other amazing challenges that you've had in Pakistan and Tibet and Alaska, etc. T- tell me a little bit about those experiences because it must have really shaped you and um, really developed that self reliance and resilience that's so necessary. Yeah, look, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, look, I wouldn't. I'll, I'm certainly a very different person today as a result of those experiences. And if I'd never ventured into the mountains at all, I suspect. I don't know, but I suspect. I've, uh, I have done a lot of growing and personal evolution, I guess, through that process of simply, yeah, being exposed to to a mountain environment. You know, multiple mountain environments, which inevitably are, are full of uncertainty and complexity. Um, and I mean, in the early days, I was simply attracted to the mountains because of my love of nature. Um, ever since I was a kid, I'd look at a mountain and think, wow, you know, isn't that amazing? And I'd wonder what it would be like to be up there. Um, but I was never a brave, sort of fearless, gung ho 
kid or and i'm certainly not a brave fearless gung-ho climber i'm terrified of heights so <laughs> it's a bit of a bit of a problem mm. but um i i was just i was always attracted to this mountain environment and particularly the alpine environment you know above the snow line um and so I was sort of always drawn back there. Um, and every time I'd go there, I'd be completely overwhelmed by the complexity of it and the uncertainty of it. Um, and I struggled with that, but I guess the stronger, the, the pull back was stronger than the fear that I, that I experienced. And over time, I guess I was able to, to get to know that alpine environment better and, and to be able to differentiate, you know, things that really are extremely dangerous and hazardous from things that may appear to be, but actually aren't if you have the right skills at all you know you, you put in place mitigating sort of um tools and equipment and so on so i, I guess over time I, I became more comfortable in that alpine environment but um yeah I, I i was curious i'm a very curious individual and so i was curious around how i could continue to push the boundaries a little bit for me personally um and so i guess you know that naturally leads you to the himalayas and then you start playing around on seven thousand meter peaks and think oh wow I wonder what it's like being on an 8,000-metre peak. And then you go, oh, well, maybe maybe Mount Everest. And so I guess it's sort of a very gradual kind of progression. Um, and as I said, driven by kind of a sense of curiosity of, of what it was that I could achieve. And, I mean, for me, I like, as I said, I'm not a gung-ho climber. I'm not a particularly good climber from a technical perspective. Um, I just love that that sense of privilege that I get when you're up really high. You know, you're well and truly above the clouds and, it's it's a it, you know these are views that only you know a few thousand people on the world on earth kind of get and so you feel very lucky to be out there and so for me that was a really big um, I guess drive just to be able to see these 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 sites that were pretty unique um, and yeah and it led me to sort of venturing all over the world and 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 through all the uncertainty and the complexity and the ambiguity that I experienced in those mountain environment, I, I, I gained much greater insight into myself as an individual and where my strengths are and where my weaknesses are and how I deal with uncertainty and um, the things that I'm, you know, particularly good at and the things that I'm, I'm not particularly good at. So, yeah, if, if, you, if, you, want, if you want good insight into yourself, um, take yourself off into the mountains because mm. the mountains, they kind of strip you bare, you know. There's no place to hide there. Mm. Um, and, you know, it's, it's yeah, your, your true self kind of become gets revealed, I guess, in the mountains. Yeah, it must do. You know, just as you're describing it, I, I, I was just imagining myself at the top of a mountain thinking, oh, actually, I, it, you feel a draw, don't you? A draw to really go there. And just you saying, you know, like being above the clouds, being up there at the summit and then looking down, it must be such an amazing moment of clarity and you know because you'd be so mindful of exactly what you're experiencing you must have had some amazing aha moments about yourself as well as what you could do for others um during those times um yeah, yeah yes and no i mean at times absolutely um and when you're yeah you know you're sort of experiencing moments where you're you know you're enraptured with the the surroundings you know and you're seeing these incredible sights but then at other times um, I find myself being very matter-of-fact, just simply dealing with the environment and taking it for what it is. Mm. Um, and um, I, I guess, you know, when you're in a dangerous environment, and particularly on, you know, big 8,000-metre peaks when you've got chronic hypoxia from low levels of oxygen, um, it's, it's, 
it's for me it's sensible to stay very grounded and matter of fact because mm-hmm. if you start getting carried away with emotion and all that kind of stuff um very quickly you can find yourself making mistakes and you end you die very very quickly up there mm. um so there's a little bit of paradox there so so a bit of yes but also a bit of no mm. yeah and also that 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 actually leads us very nicely into organizations dealing with change too because well, as a mountaineer the volatility uncertainty complexity and ambiguity it's there all the time because you know the weather changes the, the, the terrain could be different and and there's just so much change and you have to be very adaptable and flexible to stay alive really and um so what what we call it now is in a vuca world within organizations there's so much volatility uncertainty complexity and ambiguity as well how to stay competitive and successful is always a challenge so this is what your main work is because i know you travel around the world doing keynote presentations talking about this topic as well tell me a little bit about uh, the work that you do and how you help organizations sure so yeah so as you've identified that that concept of of vuca i think more than anything else in that concept of vuca um it's the complexity which is driving everything else. Um, it's, I guess, it's complexity which is driving um, what some people might refer to as the madness of the world mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, and I have have been really interested in, again, as I said at the outset, you know, traditional approaches to the world of work and and this idea that perhaps they they've had their time and that in the future they, they they're likely to provide diminishing returns. And so what other sort of ways are there? You know, surely there must be other ways that we can do things better. Um, and, um, yeah, so the work that I do is basically in that space consulting um, organisations who are looking at shifting away from that traditional, um, I guess, engineered, mechanistic um, approach to the world of work and who are more interested in that more kind of natural, organic, um, uh, emergent um, uh, approach to the world of work. And so basically what that's getting at is is, um, what has its underpinnings in in the science of complexity and network science and um, um, this notion that the world is far more complex than we actually thought it was. And again, that our traditional approach to to the world which is to engineer solutions to build solutions to reduce the 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 infinite um, variables in the world into um, you know finite theses and concepts that we can command and control it just doesn't work mm. it doesn't work anymore um, and so that's really the the space that I kind of play in um, now and that's that's the work that I do with organizations so it sounds very high level, and conceptual and it it is um and it's not the typical approach to the world of work which is i guess why i describe myself as a contrarian um organizational thinker Mm, yes that's right i was just thinking about that because when you when i was saying to you at the beginning before we actually started the podcast interview how would you really describe yourself and you said a contrarian organizational thinker i thought ah so you are challenging people to really go to you know greater heights with regard to the way that they could approach certain problems and so you've you've worked with some amazing organizations you know there's a royal dutch shell and toyota and rio tinto and bhp and chevron etc it's taken you all over the world hasn't it 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm actually flying to Taiwan tomorrow morning. So, uh, and I was in New Zealand last week. So mm-hmm. I do do travel around a fair bit. Um, so it's great. It's getting exposure to um, to different um, organisations in different industries is a great way to kind of well to see how they're going about doing things. Um, and um, I mean, make no mistake, I don't proclaim to be an expert. Um, and I mean, I, I refer to myself as a student. I'm a student of people and places mm. under conditions of uncertainty and complexity. And I think the traditional notion of a consultant as being an expert who can come in and solve a problem, I think it's really flawed mm. um, in a world full of complexity. Um, so I guess what I like to do is basically um, take my thinking and expose it to others and then um, um, see what emerges as a result of that thinking. And so as a consultant, really, almost like a, a pollinating um, ideas from one organisation to the next, um, which is, look, I mean, it's very, very different to my early days of work, which was, you know, and, and particularly after I'd, I'd been doing a lot of speaking work and, I mean, it's it's you climb Mount Everest and it's arbitrary, it's just one particular mountain, but all of a sudden people want to hear you tell stories about it and they'll pay you to do it. Mm. You know, um, but I started out doing, you know, do, taking a traditional kind of leadership approach and stories about leadership from the mountains and all that. But it just, it just felt incredibly hollow. Mm. Um, it felt really, really shallow. And I, and I couldn't do it after a while anymore. I just said, this is ridiculous. I don't actually believe what I'm saying. So I'm actually just going to, I'm just going to talk about what I believe in and what I know to be true from my own perspective and my own experiences. Um, and so I guess that's why I've described myself as a contrarian organizational thinker because I mean, there's a, you know, there's, 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 there's a number of us in this space, but, but compared to the majority, um, um, there's not so many of us. Um, and it's not easy at times sort of chucking rocks at, at the traditional approaches because there's a lot of people and consultants and organizations who are, who are heavily invested in that traditional process. But, but I, I certainly believe that if, if, if the world of work is to change and, as a result of that, societies to improve, then we need we need to consider new approaches. And and again, this contrarian approach, I think, is a much more valid one for the world that we face today. Mm. You know, last year when I heard you speak at this conference, I was very inspired. First of all, well, I'm one of the ones who loves to hear about mountain stories. Okay? So, <laughs> so, so it, it will do. It's natural. It's natural. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's just so exciting because it's something that you know I haven't haven't scaled Everest. So of course you want to hear about it. But you you had this one um, uh, concept that you were talking about during the conference about exponential growth and how so often when you're implementing change, you think, oh, nothing's working, nothing's happening. And it just grows and grows. I'd love you to share that story because it was just, it it really got got to me. And and I thought, this is amazing. I'm always trying to, of course, build my business as well. And sometimes you think nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, it just seems as though it's exploding. Yeah. So let's talk about exponential growth, Patrick. I guess, I mean, I was delving into that from the perspective of what was driving all of this um, volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. Um, I mean, people and places have been interacting with one another, you know, for thousands upon thousands of years. But I guess in more recent times, technology is, you know, rapidly um, and and dramatically um, changing the way that people interact with one another. And in very recent times, you know, 
technology, you know, multiple technologies, but computing power and um, soon, you know, artificial intelligence, these technologies which are experiencing exponential growth, these are the key drivers of this increasing complexity. Um, so when you look at Moore's Law, for example, which is um, it's basically an observation um, that every two years um, computing power is doubling. Um, and that's summarising what Moore's law is. But 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 think about it, that every two every two years or so, um, the 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 number of transistors that fit on the computer chip doubles, and then two years time it doubles again, and then doubles again, which leads to exponential growth rates. And there's multiple technologies around the world at the moment which are experiencing exponential growth rates. And the 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 key thing around that is is that exponential growth is essentially nonlinear. Um, but people don't really deal particularly well with nonlinear growth and concepts of nonlinearity. We all like linearity, which is essentially cause and effect logic. Um, one plus one equals two. Um, and does that make sense? It's very consistent. Oh, yes, yes that, it does. That, yeah, that mechanistic world of engineered solutions. But when things such as exponential growth, which are nonlinear, um, start influencing the world, they very, very quickly tear apart all of those traditional kind of linear approaches and those traditional linear structures. Um, and But here's the rub with exponential growth, that in the early stages of it, it it's very easy to mistake it for linear growth because exponential growth starts very slowly. Yeah. And you don't see a lot of evidence of change. And then it's only very, very suddenly when you pass what's known as the kick or the knee of the curve that things start going really crazy. And which is a little bit maybe consistent with what we're seeing in the world today. People are thinking, wow, what's going on, you know? And when is all this going to stop? Um, but the problem with exponential growth in technologies is that if it doesn't stop, um, and that what if at this point in society right now we're only just at the kick of the curve and things haven't even started yet? That's a big concern, I think, for all of us. And specifically as it relates to the world of work, then you've got to look at traditional approaches to business and organisations and and understand that the, the, the likelihood of them continuing to succeed in the future is very low. And, you know, you can throw platitudes at, about it and talk about, okay, well, we need to be more innovative, we need to be more agile, which is what everybody's doing these days, but it's just a Band-Aid solution. It's just a superficial platitude. It, it doesn't actually consider the the greater depth of the complexity which is continuing to increase so does that make sense yes it does it, it's yeah. just it's such a, a fascinating concept and it's so important too because you, you sort of reach a tipping point when everything is going to explode and yes. and i wonder you know you, you've uh, published your book through wiley recently the light and fast organization and the tagline is a new way of dealing with uncertainty is this something that that you also tackle within your book yeah absolutely yeah. absolutely um i talk about the whole concept of vuca i talk about um exponential growth as one of the drivers of vuca yeah. Um, and then I kind of um, I use that as the, the context for looking at the traditional approach um, um, to doing things in the world, which I use the metaphor of expedition style, which is a very slow, methodical way of climbing mountains, mm -hmm. and contrast it with alpine style, which is a newer way of mountaineering, and it's much less dependent upon fixed infrastructure and large teams, and it's a much more adaptable, responsive way. So basically what I'm trying to do is to give a metaphor um, and to give a language to people that they can use to maybe help them understand what it means to be 
truly innovative and agile, you know, um, because very few people can actually describe what it means to be innovative or mm. what an organisation is that, that is agile, what it actually looks like. And so one of the things that I was trying to do in the book was perhaps just give a basic metaphor that people can use. And, I mean, yeah, you have seen the keynote, Jane. And mm. Do you remember the example of Yuli Steck on the Iger and he mm-hmm. climbs it in a rapidly short time? And sort of for many people that's the moment they go, oh, wow, mm. okay, now I get the difference. You know, it's, you don't want to be encumbered by all of that baggage and equipment and because then, then if there's so much infrastructure, you can't change. Yeah. 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 It's, it's You've got an, to one path. Yeah. yeah. You know, expedition and, style is about getting to the top no matter what, mm. but via only one path, whereas Alpine style is about getting to the top if it's possible via any, uh, via multiple different paths. And if, if that particular summit's not um, reachable, it doesn't matter. There's lots of others. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's it's being adaptable to to change as well, and then rethinking when necessary. It's now now tell me, Patrick, Patrick Hollingworth, the author. So you've written this book. What was it that that um, was your inspiration to actually sit down and write this book? Because I know it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, <laughs> a lot of dedication. You're very busy. You're consulting. You're working. You're traveling. You're speaking. So how did you get the book written? <laughs> I got it written in an appallingly short period of time. Mm. So I wrote it in um, 90 days, which was um, pretty scary. And yeah. when I first had the contract from the publisher, I had seven weeks to complete it um, and I'd only written 5,000 words. Um, <laughs> so uh, let's just say I didn't meet that seven-week deadline. <laughs> um, but I, I think that – I mean. The, the, and as you know, Jane, the process of writing a book, it forces you to really put a lot of your thinking um, through a very rigorous process because when you're committing something to print, um, it's out there, you know. You can't really retract it. And so you you, you want there to be, um, I, yeah, I guess a depth to thinking and, 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 and that's for me what I found the book was really great to do was to be able to, to really kind of, yeah, to reassess all of my thinking with a renewed kind of rigour and make sure, well, this is up to the standard of a, of a published book. You know, people will be reading this. Um, and so that was probably the biggest thing for me was to um, – and it obviously required a lot of discipline, um, and I'm not a particularly disciplined person. Um, I mean, obviously, as a mountaineer, I can be disciplined when I need, need to be, but not all the time, and I guess likewise with this book. I had to be disciplined and I was able to be to, to get it done. Um, um, and, but ultimately I, I think it's a book that, um, that, that, you know, serves to try and, in, I guess, explain the current way of the world and to question the traditional approach to that way of the world. Um, I mean, look, it's, you know, it's, it's, it was published last year. It was written in late 2015. So, Already I'm painfully aware of how out of date it is because it's, you know, it's early to mid 2017. Um, but I guess that's another inherent problem with writing books is that, um, these days by the time the book gets published, the world has already moved on a lot. <laughs> well, I think it's time for the second edition then, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Although I, ha I have to admit, I mean, writing a book, I, I don't know if you experience this, but while, while I was writing mine and mine's about careers and I set myself a task of a thousand words a day initially just to really break the back of the number of words I needed to, to write. And after a period of time, I, I started to think, oh, kill me now. Why am I doing this? It's because it's so time consuming and you have to be so disciplined. And same yeah. as you, I'm, I'm not naturally a very disciplined person. So I had to force myself. So now, Patrick, I'd like to find out because you've done so many things in your career and, and obviously you're very, very successful in what you do. And you're a fascinating keynote speaker as well. Cause it just, you just suck people in. It's so interesting with your stories. What would you say are your top three tips for success? I'm not going to say just for business or writing a book, but your top three six, uh, tips for success in life. Mm. So I don't really have any. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I guess, um, and again, I, I guess that's kind of consistent with the contrarian philosophy and, and, and based in notions of complexity because when, when you identify three discrete things, you mm. can understand how it's really breaking things down into kind of a linear sequential engineered mm. process. First do this and then do this and then do that mm. and you'll be okay. And I and I'm, I know I'm taking the mickey a little bit here. I know mm. that's not really what you were, were implying, mm. um, but I guess I, I tend to struggle with questions like that because um, um, the three things that I might say today might not be relevant for me tomorrow. Um, so I, I guess... Look, I'm, I'm waffling on a bit here, Jane, but I'm going to try. Let, I'm going to try and me, answer this for let you. Me say, let me save you, Patrick. Okay, so <laughs> this this actually has demonstrated how we can't be locked in to mm. something because you can't say, okay, Patrick says, I do this, I'll get this, because that's not the way that you work as well. So even the challenge to answer that question demonstrates, no, we need to be able to keep it open. Um, that, you know, what might work today might not work tomorrow. So what will be successful for you has really evolved over the years, hasn't it? Look, it, look, it absolutely has. And that, I mean, look, that's consistent to the, the approach that I take with my clients in the consulting work that I do where we're, you know, we're looking at an organisational transformation. So the traditional approach would be, okay, right, we are going to, uh, we need to transform the organisation because the, you know, the current situation is untenable, it's so dire, and we need to slash costs and slash staff numbers, and in five years' time, we'll be a much better version of the business. Um, whereas the contrarian approach is is to is to not do that at all, and it's just to to start with what you've got rather than what you'd like to have. It's to start with where you are rather than where you'd like to be, and it's to start with minimal energy and fuss expenditure rather than maximal energy and fuss expenditure. And so um, that's probably. I mean, there you go. There's three things right there. Um, that that maybe kind of encapsulate what I'll try and do. So I'm I'm no longer about setting big grand visions because they they just don't work. The world changes. So my my suggestion would be know what your strengths are and play to those. Um, you know, yeah, uh, uh, start with the the things that are easiest for you to do. Um, you know, if if your disposition is to do it in a particular way follow that disposition because um, it's going to use the least energy. Does that make sense? 
It does, it does. Okay, so that's two things, Patrick, I managed to squeeze out of you with a great deal of reluctance. But I tell you what, what I really like was start with minimal fuss and expenditure. So that could be for anyone who's making a, a career change or transitioning into entrepreneurship, building their own business, making a change in the organization. What can you do without spending a lot of money and upsetting a great deal of people, you know, working with what you've got. So I think th- those that already is very, very valuable. And I, yeah, think and you can, you, I was going to say, you can understand that. I mean, we're, we're, we've, we've been brought up in a society which has encouraged us to dream big. We know we've been influenced by particularly American culture, which is all about, you know, you can do anything you, you put your mind to if you believe, if you believe enough, if you dream big enough. Um, but I, I just think it, it kind of fails us, and particularly in this world where everything changes so quickly, you know, you might believe that you, you know, or you might desire to achieve something big and you map out your five-year time frame, but what you want to do in five, five, five years' time, the world's already moved on. Yeah, the yeah. world's changed and it's shifted, and what you wanted to do is irrelevant. Mm. So there's nothing wrong with having an idea. Um, my, my friend Jason Fox, I think he talks about mm. a fuzzy beacon. You know, so, so have a notion of what it is you're kind of wanting to be doing, but it doesn't have to be this big grand plan. It doesn't have to be this all-encompassing, you know, the big, hairy, audacious goal, um, which the likes of Jim Collins has promoted, but it, it doesn't have to be that. Yeah, actually, it's, it's interesting because, you know, a typical, yeah, I work with so many people who are going through career change. And um, many people ask me, you know, what do I say when someone asks me, you know, where do you see yourself in the next five years? None of us know where we'll yeah, be exactly. in the next 18 months, six yeah, months. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, you can you can have a plan, but it does need, as you say, it needs to be a fuzzy plan um, yeah. that you can change because, even though you know you've set yourself a goal, what if the weather changes? Mm, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> what if yeah. there's a we- avalanche? Yeah, I mean, you just exactly. don't know. And so you have to do something a little bit different. So I think you can plan ahead for short term, but long term, it's oh, let's just keep it open. And I think that that ties in so well with um, the the title of your book, the Light and Fast Organization. Now, Patrick, tell me, people will want to know more about you. So where can they find you, and where can they buy your book? Sure. Um, so they can find me um, at patrickhollingworth.com um, and on my website is a link to a place where you can purchase the book. Um, another thing they could do, if, they, if, if they're curious around what I've been talking about, they could sign up to my newsletter. Um, and again, there's a link on my website. I think it's patrickhollingworth.com slash subscribe. Um, so yeah, I, I write about this kind of stuff Um about once a month. It's a fairly irreverent kind of, not surprisingly contrarian um, <laughs> um, viewpoint, and um, it does contain the occasional swear words. So only sign up if you if oh. you're not too easily offended. <laughs> oh, well, I don't know if I could possibly read that. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, what I'll do, um, Patrick, is I'll have um, all of your links on my show notes on janejacksoncoach.com for my podcast. And also, um, now you're on Twitter. What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is HollingworthPat. HollingworthPat. Okay, so if anyone wants to follow you on Twitter as well and see your latest um, sort of ideas and thoughts and whatever it is that you're going to be up up to uh i'll put that on my show notes on my website as well so what parting thoughts would you like to leave us with patrick parting thoughts um parting thoughts jane geez uh (laughs) 
it's got to be something about it's got to be something about the world of complexity yeah. and um, 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 yeah, talking about being innovative and agile isn't enough. Um, we need to understand it from a much deeper sense than that. Um, 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 and I think I'll leave it at leave it at that. <laughs> well, you've given us so much valuable insight already. It really has been interesting. You've had such a fascinating career journey. Thanks so much for for sharing it with us. And you know, because you combine the 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 physical challenge, you know, with the intellectual and and really emotional challenges as well. It's 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 an interesting life, isn't it? Yeah, you got to keep life interesting. At the, at the end of the day, you want to be able to look back and think, well, that was a life well lived the life worth lived Mm, and you're certainly doing that thank you so much patrick and i hope to have you back on the show again maybe in another year or so so that you can tell us all about your other adventures that you'll be having yep yep i love that okay thank you patrick bye thanks jane bye Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. You can get a free audiobook download and free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. There are over 180,000 book titles to choose, so give it a go and get your free audiobook today from audibletrial.com forward slash Jane Jackson Careers. You've been listening to Jane Jackson Careers. Sign up to receive regular career advice at janejacksoncoach.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Your Career Podcast, I invite you to check out my career success program at thecareersacademy.online. The Career Success Program is the original program that uniquely provides 24-7 on-demand career support and fortnightly live career coaching sessions to keep you on track to reach your career goals. It is the essential resource for anyone who wants to manage their career effectively, make a career change and land the job they'll love. Whether you're in exploration mode or seeking a new career direction and need help to make it a reality, the Career Success Program is for you. Not only do you get access to my step-by-step roadmap to navigate your career crossroads, my extensive training library and exclusive members-only discounts and tools, you'll also become part of my supportive community of professionals who will help you with feedback, encouragement and advice. All this and more makes the Career Success Program the number one place to be for anyone looking to start, manage and grow their career. Check it out and join me at thecareersacademy.online.